The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We go back quite a ways now. And as I look around and see many of you who are here, uh, I am reminded of many times that we have enjoyed together, and how God has blessed this church over the years. And uh, of course, I have the priv- a privilege which nobody else uh, can have, and that is to just look at this facility and marvel what God has done. Uh, God is the one who did it. And we were privileged to watch him do it. And uh, I could spend the whole morning telling you stories about how God did it. But it was obvious to those of us who were here in those days that this is God's doing, not ours. And we uh, are thrilled to come back and visit and renew acquaintances and uh, renew our love for you and for our friendships that we've enjoyed together for nearly 20 years now, we are grateful for the way the Lord has used this church. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we acknowledge today that we are your children and this is your church. And what is here is here because you have done it. You have provided this facility that was an impossible dream. And you have done that. And you have taken people who deserved nothing but condemnation. And you have transformed our lives. You have drawn us to yourself. You have gifted us. You have given us one another and the privilege of serving you together. So, Father, we are grateful for what you have done. And with that in mind, we look forward to this morning with expectancy. Lord, as we open your word, we realize this is not the words of men and it's not my incredible wisdom or power that will open it to us. It is the work of your Spirit. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would take your Word, would apply it to our hearts, and that he would change us. Lord, use our time together this morning to make a difference in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point, I have to look way back Thank you. This point, I look way back in my life. Uh, the memories are only fuzzy, but I have vague memories of days of childhood in the Boy Scouts. And there was one of those jokes that wasn't new when I came along. I probably people my age remembered it from their childhood. But it just blooms out of the whole uh, aura of Boy Scouts. 
And that was the story of these Boy Scouts who came to their Boy Scout troop meeting and were giving a report of their good deeds for the week. And three of them reported that they had helped this little old lady across the street. And as they came to tell their stories, the scoutmaster began to realize that they had all helped the same little old lady across the street. And so he asked, and why did it take three of you to help this little old lady across the street? To which they responded, she didn't want to go. (laughs) You're not that young, are you? I'm also reminded this morning of our childhood, our youth, uh, growing up. You know, I have to give a little history to some of you younger folk. That it used to be a custom when a man and a woman approached a door that the man would open the door for the woman. When our daughters went to college, they commented on the fact that things had changed from when I went to college. That guys no longer opened the door for girls. And and as they examined the situation, and as we examined the situation, we came to realize that the problem wasn't that the guys weren't willing to open the door. The problem was that when a guy opened a door for a woman or a girl, she would get very upset You know, I'm able to open the door for myself, thank you. And women no longer appreciated somebody opening a door for them. People don't always want someone to open the door for them. And that is just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the physical realm of opening the door as you come into the building. People do not always appreciate our desire to open the door for them. When we seek to see men and women and boys and girls realize their need of Jesus Christ, that isn't always appreciated. Our postmodern society tells us that we shouldn't be coming to people and telling them, here is the way. We ought to let everybody discover their own truth. And so when we come and say, God has spoken and, and show them His Word, they do not appreciate us opening a door for them to hear the truth. You've been looking in recent weeks at one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Now, those of you who have been around a few years will remember that we had a series going on Sunday evening. We took a look at a book each night for a number of years uh, to examine that book. And if you remember any of you from those years... Uh, it became a custom for me to say every week, today we're going to look at one of my favorite books. But one of my favorite books is the book of Acts. So I'm a little jealous of what Steve's been doing here. And I'm going to plow in a little bit, and I hope 
we're on the same page. At least we're in the same book, and <laughs> that ought to control what we say about it. But in the book of Acts, we observe that the church was extremely effective in sharing the good news of Christ with people around them. Thousands of people in a single day trusting Christ. In their generation, what God was doing was an incredible thing. And sometimes I find Christians in our day asking the question, why don't we see thousands of people coming to Christ today as they did back in their day? And it's a valid question. Unfortunately, we don't always have valid answers to that question. I'd like to suggest that there's at least three reasons that explain why we don't see the same kind of response. The first reason has to do with a unique moment in God's program. The progress of God's program in the day in which they were proclaiming the Word of God. It was a unique moment. In the initial chapters, the message is being proclaimed to Israel. Many of them have grown up hearing all of their lives about Messiah's coming. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, people come from every nation, gathering together in expectancy that God would fulfill His promise to His people. And those who came, came with that mindset that they would be experiencing what God had promised He would give to them. It catches my attention that in that second chapter, those who are united together that day are referred to as devout. That word is a, an exclusively used word that literally means they were rightly religious. What kind of people does God say are rightly religious? There are plenty of religious people around. Living in this community, you've met many religious people. But God says those people who came to Jerusalem that day and who saw what was taking place were rightly religious. That same term is used in Luke 2 to describe Simeon. It's used later in the book of Acts to describe those who, when Stephen was stoned, came to bury him and mourn over his loss. That same description is used of Cornelius as a man who was genuinely seeking the truth. As we look at those descriptions of these people, we discover that, the, that these are people who were expecting God to fulfill His promise. They were what we would often refer to as Old Testament saints. They, they were rightly religious like Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and lesser known people of the Old Testament who believed God, were expecting Him to do something, and so they have come together to Jerusalem to see what God is going to do. Might this be the year the Messiah comes? In the process of coming, they heard about this 
phony imposter who came and presented himself as Messiah, but don't worry, we took care of him. And then suddenly something happened that they couldn't explain. The Spirit of God moved. And the people come together and they say, what is God doing here? And Peter says, what God is doing is demonstrating that this Jesus that your generation of Israel crucified is your Messiah. And he is your God. He is Lord. And he is Christ. And they responded saying, then what should we do? This was a unique moment. 3,000 people who had been waiting for their Messiah suddenly come face to face with the reality that Jesus is the one that God promised. And they turn to Him and trust Him that day. It was a unique moment in history. We don't go walk the streets of Salt Lake City and find thousands of people who are waiting for the coming of Messiah today. That was a unique moment in their history. There's a second reason why they were especially powerful in that first generation, in those early chapters of the the book of Acts. And that is the unique movement of the Holy Spirit in their midst. He was working in a way that he doesn't do today and he hasn't done down through the history of the church. He's done it occasionally in the time of Moses and Joshua and in the time of Elijah and Elisha and in the time of Christ and the apostles. He moved in spectacular ways to demonstrate that God was moving and God was speaking in their midst. And so, God was working in a unique way. He has come as was promised. And he affirms the truth that God is working by supernatural demonstrations of power. There was kind of evidence there that phonies have tried to reproduce. But it was unique to their day. There's a third reason why things happened in that day that don't happen today. And that was... Because Jesus' followers are aware of their total dependence on the Spirit of God to draw people to Christ. Frankly, we can't duplicate those first two causes of what God was doing. They were unique to that moment. But this third reason is very frequently a reason why we do not see God work in the same way in our midst as they did. We frequently are not aware of the fact that if we are going to be effective in bringing anybody to Christ, it's going to be the Spirit of God who does it, not us. We're not capable of twisting enough arms We're not capable of convincing people of their need of drawing people to Christ. Only the Spirit of God is able to do that. I want to go back to something that I have mentioned numerous times, and I believe I preached a a similar message a year ago when I was here, in part. 
And, and that is to realize our dependence on God to accomplish anything of genuine, permanent value. If you think you can do something to impress God, if you think you can do something to accomplish something great for God, whatever that may be, let me... I don't know what the right word is. Let, Let me put that idea down. Because you see, we are not capable of doing anything of permanent value. That starts way back at the beginning of our story. You go way back to the beginning of our story. How do we start as God's people? How do we start the Christian life? You will never become a child of God until you realize that you can't do it yourself. It begins by realizing that everything I am goes against everything that God is. And all I want to do is please myself and impress people, sometimes even try to impress God. Though, frankly, for most people, it's not about impressing God. It's about impressing other people. And until we realize we will never be good enough to to make it with God, we will never be good enough to earn our way, we will never become God's children because we'll keep trying to do it ourselves. And God's Word is clear that eternal life is for those who realize they can't do it themselves and who turn to Christ and trust Him receive eternal life. But that's just the first step. Galatians 3, Paul asked believers there who were trying to live the Christian life on their own, and he says, are you so foolish that realizing you had to start the Christian life by faith, now do you think you can go it alone? Do you think now that you've received eternal life, and now you can live in your own strength? In Galatians, Paul makes clear, you're never going to make it that way. We couldn't receive eternal life that way. We can't live a godly life that way. We live a godly life by faith, by trusting Him, even as we receive eternal life that way. In Galatians 5, we realize that The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and all those things, we can't produce those things in ourselves. They're fruit that the Spirit of God produces in us. He's the one who produces it, not us. And we'll never be able to produce that fruit in ourselves. Only God's Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And that brings us to our point this morning. Just as we can't receive eternal life in our own strength, just as we can't walk a godly life in our own strength, just as we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength, neither can we convince people to trust Christ in our own strength. It ain't going to happen. You will never put together, I don't care who your teacher is, and I've taught probably every 
imaginable approach to evangelism. And I don't care how good the approach is, you will never get it down good enough that you will convince people to trust Christ. If there's any comfort, neither will I. We will never get it down good enough to twist people's arms and drag them to Jesus. Only God can do that. And that's why the issue that Pastor Steve was talking about last week, the issue of prayer, is critical to reaching men and women for Jesus Christ. Colossians 4, Paul says that we can open a door for people around us to pass through, to be attracted to the Savior. He tells us what that way is, and it's the only way that we can open the door. We will never do it by our own brilliance, by our own power. Even Paul couldn't do that. Even Jesus says, no one comes to the Father, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Even Jesus didn't try to do it in his own strength. Paul didn't try to do it in his own strength. He asked people to pray that God would open the door. We can't do what only God can do. And sometimes we fall in that trap of trying to force open a door that God hasn't opened, thinking if we just try hard enough, we'll get somebody to Christ. Oh, no, we won't. It isn't going to happen that way. How can we make a difference then? How can we be used by God? to help attract people to Christ. Paul exhorts us to imitate him, to dedicate ourselves to prayer, watching intently with thanksgiving. I like Lloyd Ogilvie's comment on this passage and on our times. He says, we've arrived at a strange state of self-sufficiency in contemporary Christianity. We have organized out the need for Christ's intervention. Churches are filled with competent people who can handle daily living rather effectively. We don't need Him for daily living. And so we miss out on what God wants to provide for us. Because with all of our organization and strategy and wonderful ideas of how to do things, we think we can do it without God. It doesn't work. If we're going to share Christ effectively with others, then God must open the door. As Steve mentioned last week, God opens the door in response to prayer. Look with me at Colossians, the fourth chapter, verses 2 through 4. Paul urges us, 
Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. In that exhortation, he gives us at least three descriptions of what our prayer ought to look like. The first of those, he tells us, our prayer should be watchful. Like a military sentry on duty, on guard, watching for what's going to happen, lest the enemy move in by surprise and destroy them. Authentic prayer requires alertness, expectancy, watching for God to do something, so we'll recognize it when we see it. Second characteristic of our prayer is our prayer should be with thanksgiving. It's a response of thanks, of gratitude. We have gratitude when we expect God is going to do something. When we believe He's going to do something, when we ask Him to do it, we ask Him with thanksgiving. Because we know we can count on Him to do it. Then the focus of the passage looks at the third characteristic. We ought to pray for people who proclaim the gospel. Not vague general prayer, Lord bless Paul and all he's seeking to do today, but specific prayer, specific purpose. Pray that God might open the door. through which the Word of God might penetrate to reach people who hear it. Interesting, when he prays that a door would open, he's in prison. He's not praying that God would open the door of the prison. He's not asking for liberty. He asks for an open door so the gospel can go in that door. More important that he be a faithful minister than it is that he be a free man. Following Paul's example, when we pray, we ought to ask God to give us opportunities that we might explain the truth clearly. We spend too much time trying to force the door open ourselves trying to somehow make people pay attention to the gospel. And people don't appreciate our opening the door. We have to spend more time asking God to open the door, watching for open doors, and going through the open door. One of the themes that we have focused on over the years and we focused on it when we were here as well and it's the idea of praying for two now in saying that I want to be very clear there's nothing inspired about the number here it's not that two is better than one or two is better than three and some people have a, a list of, of, of their favorite five you know you can get them on your telephone now even so you can call them up and Shoot them a Bible verse. 
That wasn't exactly what I had in mind here. But, you know, you can have your favorite five. Or, or your, your uh, I forget, what, one of the organizations that's focused on this has talked about your ten most wanted. To me, it doesn't matter whether there's two on your list or ten. Two is just very manageable for me. I can keep track of two. Maybe my mind's a little simple, but, but I can handle two. And so for a number of years, I have been urging people to pray that God would place two people on your heart that you could begin to pray for that God would open the door. I did this with a friend of mine in Guatemala some years ago. The man's name was Rogelio. We were doing a discipleship ministry with five or six of the men from our church, and Rogelio was one of those men, and we enjoyed great fellowship together. And I remember we talked about praying for two. And week after week, Rogelio would come back to me and say, Rafa, uh, I failed. I said, what do you mean you failed? Well, I don't have my two. I said, no, wait a minute, you misunderstood my assignment. The assignment is that you pray that God would lay on your heart two people that you can minister to, that you might have an opportunity to share Christ with. And then begin to pray for those two. So, well, I don't have my two. And I say, okay, then keep praying that God will show you who those two people are. Next week, Rogelio comes in. I failed again. What do you mean you failed? I've been praying for two. God hasn't given me two. I don't know who they are. I failed. No, you just keep praying that God will show you who those two people are in your life that you might have an opportunity to share Christ with. Next week, guess what happened? I blew it again. What do you mean you blew it? I still don't have my two people. What are we going to learn? Until God shows you who they are, don't worry about it. Just ask Him to lay two people on your heart. Until God does His part, relax. It was about the next week that Rogelio came to me and said, you're not going to believe what happened to me this week. He said, Friday afternoon, I was sitting in my office. He was a businessman, had his own company. He was sitting in his office and he had his Bible out and he was praying for two and mourning because we were getting near the time when we were going to meet again. He was going to come back and tell us his failure again. And he just asked God, God, don't let me do that again. I don't want to go back a failure. There was a knock on his door. One of his workers came to his door. It was the close of the day on Friday afternoon. One of his workers came to him and said, Rogelio, I've been watching you. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about your life that's different, and I want it. And Rogelio had the opportunity to share Christ with that man in his office and see that man come to know Christ. He never even added him to his list. I mean, God doesn't always play by our rules, you know? You know what else? What? He no more than left my office and another guy came knocking on the door. And guess what he said? I'm going through some hard times in my life. I've seen how you've gone through the hard times in your life and you've got something I need. 
What is it? And he had the opportunity to share Christ with that man that same afternoon. And of course, that Sunday when we got together, Rogelio walked in beaming. He said, you're never going to believe it. I haven't even put two people on my list yet and two people have come to know Christ. I get excited thinking about Rogelio. I get excited thinking about if we just begin to pray that God would give us two. During our time with Evangelical Free Church, I had the opportunity to become pretty close friends with Paul Cedar, who was the president of the Evangelical Free Church for several years. He was the president at that time. And Paul used to love to tell a story, a true story from his own life. He was, for a number of years, he worked with Leighton Ford's Evangelistic Crusade and with Billy Graham's Evangelistic Association. And he was in the process of preparing for a crusade in Denver. And he was invited to speak to a Christian woman's club meeting one afternoon or one lunchtime for lunch. And he went in and he, in the process of speaking to these women, he shared a simple gospel message with the women and asked if any of those women would like to trust Christ as their Savior. And several of them made that decision that day. And this one lady walked up to him afterwards and met Paul and Jeannie, his wife, and was talking to them about what had happened. And she said, you know, I, I am so excited and so grateful. You know, sometimes people trust Christ and they're very quiet. This woman was exuberant. She was not quiet. She was excited. She said, I am so excited that I have come here and heard about Christ and I've received eternal life. It is so exciting, but I don't know why I'm here. And Paul said, well, he said, probably somebody invited you to come and brought you with... No, she said, you don't understand. I don't have a Christian friend. I don't like Christians. I don't want to hang around with those people. I don't have a Christian friend in the world. Nobody came to me to invite me to this meeting. And he said, well, maybe somebody was praying for you that you don't even know... You don't understand. Nobody would pray for me. I don't know any Christians. Nobody would be praying for me. And Paul finally just sort of shook his head and he said, well, you know, he said, I don't know how to answer the question, but he said, I will bet you that one of these days God is going to show you somebody who has been praying for you. And she kind of in disbelief walked off and left, excited about Christ, but really wondering, how did I get here? She picked up the newspaper, looked in the newspaper that day, and there had been an ad for this luncheon with a phone number to call for a reservation. She says, I never do anything crazy like this. Says, I, I never go somewhere where I don't know anybody or take a risk like that. She said, I picked up the phone, I called that number, I, I came and I trusted Christ, but I don't know why I'm here. So they separated that day. About a week later, Paul was in his office working and his phone rang. He answered the phone and there was this hysterical woman on the phone. He discovered it was that young, vivacious woman that had trusted Christ. 
And she said to him, you're never going to believe what happened to me today. She said, I, I was cleaning up the house, getting around vacuuming and cleaning the house when a knock came to the door. And I went to the door and there was this woman I've never met at the door. And this woman said to me, she said, you know, I saw when you folks moved into this house a couple of months ago, and, and I've been wanting to come by and welcome you to the neighborhood, and so I baked this cake for you, and, and here it is, and welcome to our neighborhood. And uh, the woman said, why don't you come in? Invited her to come in, made coffees, cut, cut the cake, and they sat down to eat. And, and this woman was excited about her newfound faith in Christ, and nobody had told her yet, you're not supposed to tell anybody. So she just let it all spill out. She wanted, these, she wanted this lady to know what God had done for her. She was so excited about it, and when she was telling this woman, the woman began to cry. And as she noticed this woman crying, she said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry if I've offended you or hurt you in some way. And the woman said, no, this is wonderful. She said, when, when you moved in a couple of months ago, I was watching through my kitchen window and I saw you and your husband and your children moving in and I began to pray and I have prayed for you every day since you moved in. And God's already done it. Another one of those cases where it wasn't fair. You know, God didn't play by the rules. You know, the rules say, I'm supposed to get to tell you about Christ. God's already done it. And it's wonderful. And as she was talking to her, they finally they said goodbye and left. And this woman suddenly said, you know, my mother-in-law needs what I've got. She picked up the telephone to call her mother-in-law. She called her mother-in-law and, and, and hoping to have the opportunity to share Christ with her mother-in-law. They'd been, they'd been estranged for years. They hadn't spoken to one another. She calls her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law says, Dear, before you say a word, there's something I want to say. She said, I, she said, I just want to apologize for the way I've acted toward you and your husband for these last several years. And she said, and I want to tell you that a couple of months ago, I came to trust Christ as my Savior. And, and I want to tell you about it. She said, I've been praying for you every day. This woman didn't have a clue that anybody was praying for her. Pray for two. I don't know who ought to be on your list. You may not know today who ought to be on your list either. But you see, what, what this passage makes clear is that if we are going to present the gospel clearly, and if we are going to see God work and use us to bring people to Christ, God is the one who has to do it. And God will do it in response to prayer. We tend to be afraid to share Christ with people because we think, but what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? I'd be so embarrassed if I don't know how to answer the question. 
That calls to mind one of my favorite witnesses. And that's the blind man in John 9. Comes to know Christ. Christ changes his life. And he comes face to face with the religious leaders of Israel. And face to face with them. He tells them what Jesus has done for them. They ask all these questions. He tells them what Jesus has done for him. And they continue to ask their questions. Finally, they say, look, we don't know where this miracle came from, but, but we, know, you know, we know where Moses came from. We don't know where this guy came from. And we're not sure whether you've got the real thing or not. And the blind man responds, isn't that interesting? You can't figure out where he came from. And I don't know the answer to all your theological questions. You can ask questions that I never even imagined existed. I'm paraphrasing a little here. But isn't that interesting? You can come up with all these questions, and all I know is I was blind and now I see. How about us? Anybody here who was blind? I'm not talking about physical eyes. I'm talking about being blind to the truth. And somebody prayed for us. And God opened a door. And we heard the gospel. And God opened our eyes so we could see. You see, that, that's what's so incredible about prayer. It isn't about having all the answers. It isn't about being so convincing in the way we present Christ. I have seen God use some of the craziest things to bring people to Christ. I, I went out with a pastor friend when I was a teenager still. And he just said, would you like to go with me and see how I work with people in their home? And I said, sure, I'm game for anything. Little did I know. I mean, we went to these people's house. They'd visited our church. We went to their house. And, and, he, and he said, would you be willing for us to come in and lead a Bible study with you a half hour every Thursday night from 7 to 7.30? Would you be willing to have us come? And they said, yeah, sure. Well, how about if we start tonight? Yeah, sure. Okay, well, let's look at First Thessalonians. First chapter. We're going to go down and we're going to look at all the places that are named in First Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, that's an evangelistic message if I ever heard one. Name the places in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Okay, now we're going to read it again. We're going to look at all the people who are named there and see what it says about these people. And we went down and we picked out all the names. Now, there's an evangelistic approach. And I even forget what the rest of the questions were. You know, half hour, 25 minutes come to an end. And he turns to these people and he says, Would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? And they said, Yes. And I'm saying, Huh? It's not about whether we have our act put together. It's about the Spirit of God doing His work. And that's done in response to prayer. And there's not a person in this room who can't come up with two people you know who need Christ that you can begin to pray for.
Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.